itch. Live life to the fullest. Pick it up, lay it down, move forward. A nine-foot behemoth striding in fantastic steps across the tundra of existence. Just a gigolo. Everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. Paid for every dance, selling each romance. <laughs> every night, some heart betraying. There will come a day, youth will pass away. Then what will they say about me? When the end comes, they will say, I know. They'll say, just a gigolo. As life goes on without me, just a gigolo. Sure, everywhere I go. What are we getting rid of that thing, Come on. While you're milking it, there's less than it. It's going to be less to drop a crumminess out. Just a gigolo everywhere I go. Everywhere I can. Hey, should I really go to Peru? Now, you know, this is no funsville. Everybody hears me talking about going to Peru. They think I'm going to go take one of these little pan-American flights where they give you my toonies, give you little cashew nuts, and you whoopee and holler, and you get down there, and they start playing big in the beginning, gay Latin nights, you know. And stuff. I'm talking about the Peruvian jungles, of which there are a few more jungle-like, and the sea is full of piranhas and crocodiles and electric eels and the people down there got strange appetites and they tell me that the one thing they really select that they really dig are guys with beards you know they, they can't grow beards themselves huh? they give us a you know what I can't see that it's something something phoners give us a oh, it's bent over see you guys can all read it in the control give us a few phoners to let them know whether I should go or not? Oh, well, I'll tell you this. The trouble is, you believe me, John Wayne, when he's about to storm the pillbox, does not look back at the battalion and say, Shall I go or not, fellas? It's to a man. They'd holler, Go, go, go on! Everybody's for me going to see the headhunters. I don't, you know, they all want to hear about it. <laughs> That's typical of 20th century man. He wants to hear about stuff. In fact, you know, people are at, at, at terrible odds about that, you know, whether or not a whether you really dig heroics or not. I mean, when you go to see 007, that crap, you know, when you go to see 007, do you identify with 007? Do you say, do I wish they'd call up one day and say, Fred, we've got a fantastic secret mission that we'd like to send you to, to Mesopotamia, and uh, here's this big... Uh, now, here, come here, sit down here for a minute. Here's your secret weapon. Here's this big uh, birthday cake here, and it's got an atom bomb in it, and you give it to the head of Schmertz. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, or should I go or not, huh? No, don't go, no! What was that? No, don't go! Don't what? Don't go! Why not? Because don't go, it's dangerous. <laughs> oh, what is danger to a, a happy-go-lucky rake like me? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, uh, I've been debating about this. You know, for those of you who wonder what this is about, in case you haven't heard, I have been 
I have been more or less euchred. It's like a it's like a crummy avalanche. I'll tell you. I, I at first I thought it was Kidsville, you know, and laughing about it. And the next thing I know, guys are calling up and offering me curare uh, cures. Uh, they're calling up and say, "Of course, I've got the I've got the stuff that can take care of it if you get a piranha bite." And uh, <laughs> she whiz, I guess you don't get one piranha bite, do you? If you get a piranha bite, they, they come in bunches like bananas. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one guy says, uh, my, my Playboy editor, he called and he says, are you really going to go on with this nutty thing? And I said, Jesus, shave off your beard. I said, why? He said, they like beards. He, say, he says, listen, it doesn't make any difference how Christian they are, you know. If they're ex-headhunters, you can't tempt them that much. You're liable to be the greatest head that's shown up there. <laughs> and one guy's going to be skulking in the back of the tribe. He says, well, all right, so I did swear off headhunting, but... Just this once. The guy can fall off the wagon once. And, uh, and he says, he says, you can always grow another beard, but it's a little hard with a head. In a way. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, gee whiz. Wow. I, 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 I'm, I just don't know what to do. The voice of the listener is heard throughout the land. Would you please give me some, uh, listener guts music? We we'll salute the guts of the average listener. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Real life adventure always leaves real life listeners very cold. <laughs> yes, indeed. We're aware of that, friends. But most of us prepare our exotica and our danger between soft covers. Or in 35 millimeter in color, if possible. So uh, tonight, WOR, as part of its vast public service programming, salutes listener guts. Yes. You sure got it. But, uh, yeah. Very good. That was a nice game. And well, now, now, uh, it's not going to be a night, uh, no, we're not going to talk about the headhunters, although I will say this, that, uh, that uh, I feel this way about it. I'll state my case for what it's worth. That there are very few areas of existence today that allow for actual or true adventure. Now, getting fired from BBD and O is not adventure. Uh, trying to get a job at YNR is not adventure. Uh, being rejected by a chick on McDougal Street is really not the same as Captain Ahab getting belted in the chops by a white whale. Although many a pimply-faced youth thinks it's the same problem. <laughs> not really. You know. uh, <laughs> and so so uh, I, I feel that as our life gets more and more uh, under control, everything's, well, that's comparative, of course, but I'm sure that you've got your life under control. Yang, uh, I, as we get our world more civilized in one way or another, that really means paved. Uh, <laughs> I don't know whether New York is civilized or not. I, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Now, they don't exactly do it to you in New York with poison arrows, but uh, I saw a guy once get hit with a frozen pineapple juice machine at the 23rd Street subway stop, <laughs> and he was just standing there picking his teeth. Now, uh, uh, they didn't send any missionaries down there to 23rd Street. 
to trade beads to the natives. Try to get them to straighten up, you know. Oh, by the way, speaking of the natives, uh, it's interesting to note that the natives down there in this particular tribe, the Chapras, have a real hang-up for T-shirts. They like T-shirts, and so we're going to take them white T-shirts down there, <laughs> give them T-shirts and red beads. And uh, <laughs> I'm seriously thinking of buying a bunch of these little phony heads, you know, you can get down there on 6th Avenue, you bring a whole bunch of them down there and say, look, fellas, if you really want some heads, you know, just sort of unload them on them. But uh, all in all, uh, I don't know what you do in the quiet of an evening when you're in a headhunter camp. I've thought about that. Have you ever, you know, people think in terms when they think of adventure, they think of that one fantastic moment when the curare-tipped arrows are coming through the tent and everybody is, is loading their Winchesters and digging in, you know, and, and see Aubrey Smith's rah, fight the last man. Rah. Well, uh, what about all the other hours of adventuring? You know, a friend of mine, I've, I've traveled quite a bit. In fact, I don't uh, know of many continents. In fact, I don't know of any continent I haven't at one time or another touched, at least four times. And one thing nobody really talks much about, you know, you read these exciting stories about adventure, you read these exciting uh, stories of travel, and exotic and places like that. And the one odd thing that most people never touch who write these stories, and it's really not odd at all, because it's a, probably a prime ingredient of everything, at least everything I've ever been involved in, that would be called exotic, adventuresome, or dangerous. They never talk about the endless hours of simple scut, the dullness. When you think of guys uh, on a fantastic dig somewhere near the mountain of the moon, somewhere in, in Central Africa, you're always imagining them uncovering this rare jawbone of Australopithecanthropus or something, some really rare creature, you know, that great moment of, aha, doctor, will you please come here with a microscope, please, oh. And the, and the, the natives are coming over the, 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 the tundra with their flags flying and they're attacking the camp. You do not see the scene, though. Uh, before and after, and even you don't even see the scene uh, of preparation, really. And I, I wondered if that that moment you step out of the plane. See, we're going to go there by helicopter. If you're interested, how the logistics works. There's no way to get into the. Uh, there is no Peruvian jungle Hilton, and it is a doubtful thing whether they honor diners club cars there with those with those Indians there. They. Uh, they live. They live at the headwaters of the Amazon, and they live in a jungle that is filled with jaguars. Really, this is where the jaguar lives. <laughs> he ain't a car there either. He's a jaguar. Uh, they have piranhas there, and they're not a curio there. Just piranhas. The rivers are jammed gill to gill with the piranhas, all looking with little red-rimmed eyes, waiting for somebody to slip on the bank. And uh, in between the piranhas are crocodiles who live on the piranhas. <laughs> and uh, then next to the crocodiles, laying down there at the rocky bottom of the river, are electric eels who generate power roughly the equivalent of all of Trenton with all of its lights on at once. Every, every They tell me every electric eel down there is, uh, is roughly about a 200,000-watt transmitter idling. And when he lays it on, I'll tell you, he can light up light bulbs. They say that the average uh, electric eel in these rivers in that area, when he's really trying, just by sheer RF radiation, can light up lights all the way down in Argentina, some 
12,000 miles away just by sticking his eyes out there at the water and just squeezing hard. You know? <laughs> I don't know how it works with an electric eel, but the, they're there, you see. And the, the banks of the river, uh, on, on practically every rock and under every tree, is a boa constrictor. And they said these boas are in this area because they're boa constrictors that haven't made it. Now, there are boa constrictors in places like Malay, where they're kind of a tourist attraction. Those are the boas that have made it. And people come and take those boas back, and they put them in the Bronx Zoo and places. But nobody brings a Peruvian boa constrictor back, and they haven't made it. And so they're bugged, really, in this big world. And, and they, they, it is the, way, the way that people put it to me, they're not notorious for their good humor, these boas. And they have a terrible predilection for smaller children. Say so. It's lucky that you're not a kid. <laughs> but look up. He nip and tuck. Sometimes uh, they're nearsighted and they may make a jump. And so uh, they, they told me you've got to wear these heavy leather boots down there all the time. The big boots. Says now these discourage the snakes. They they they'll bite, but they don't get all the way through. <laughs> you kick them off, you know, walk on. And deadly crates lying in the undergrowth there. Now what has this done to the natives? Well, let me tell you, you have no idea. From what I understand, the natives, their life is, uh, is one long worry. Yes. Apparently, the Stone Age life was not exactly what most of the people who believe in the noble savage like Rousseau thought it was. <laughs> their life is one, one long nip and tuck. And uh, according to the, uh, to the fellow who was in touch with me, who was who says he's going to ride in the plane as far as the jungle, and he gets off there. He's got a little business somewhere out there in civilization. He's not going all the way in. He said, uh, <laughs> I wonder what he's doing. He's opening up a good humor stand or something down the edge of the jungle there. And he said that uh, he, he says, you know, these people, they don't grow to be 40. This is the attrition rate, head-wise being what it is in the neighborhood. And they're all five, roughly five feet six, and he's uh, extremely muscular and touchy. And uh, <laughs> so I don't know. You know, the thing that makes me wonder is you get out of a plane and the jungle is all around you and you can hear the piranhas feeding off in the river there and the chief comes forward going, ah, 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 and he raises up the skull and rattles and all the others look and peer out of the undergrowth. After you have made contact, then what? And you said, nice day, chief. Nice little place you got here. You see what he say? You look over to your your interpreter, and his face is dead white. And he says, "Oh, sorry, chief. Sorry." And he said wait for the helicopter to come back ten years from now. <laughs> Speaking of the, the noble savage, this is WOR AM and FM New York. and uh, Please give a little trinkets to the natives out there. Hit the button there, please. <laughs> Thank you. 
Yes, sir, me. Hey, this is all supposed to be about Miller High Life, I presume. <laughs> Why'd you set it back there? Come on. <laughs> set it back. There's no combination. That's just music, honey. <laughs> Rasmus. All right, let's try, let's try it all over again, Skip. What's all this horn blowing? Listen, Miller High Life is a good beer. And I hope that they'll have enough room in this plane for me to take a six-pack at least of delicious, sparkling, spiritful, happy, whoopie-doo Miller High Life, which, of course, was brewed in Milwaukee. And uh, I don't know what, you know, all this blowing horns and hollering and yelling, having parties on these TV commercials and that. I don't think that sells much beer, frankly. I know what sells beer. Beer. I mean, if you like beer, you like beer. And if you like beer, you like Miller High Life. Okay? No, don't don't play that thing. We don't need that jazz. You know, speaking of uh, this uh, this problem of, of uh, adventure, I, I remember sitting sitting one time on the deck of a carrier, and uh, and I hear this was this was the, when there were some operations about to be launched, and it was dark and it was in the Mediterranean, and we were. Uh, miles off the off the uh, coast, Turkey was off there somewhere in the darkness, and the Greek islands had gone past, and the head of us was the Middle East, and it was black, and the guys were all out there with the with the planes up on the up on the launchers, topside on the carrier, and the moon was kind of a, a scimitar moon hanging over the whole scene, millions of tiny stars. I was way up there on oh. 15 or something, way up on the top of the the, uh, the island. This little iron protective thing all around me there, wearing a big fat helmet and stuff with the earphones in there, listening to the conversation going on between the bridge and the guys who were waving the ships off and the pilots and the guys who were down in the key dunk bar and everything else. It all was all in one big mishmash. And I'm standing up there looking out into this, into this ocean. The wind is blowing over the deck of the carrier. She's whistling along at about 30 knots into the teeth of a gale, or at least it got to be a gale after this 30-mile-an-hour ship was whistling into it, and the A4Ds were taking off with the rocket, or the uh, the big uh, plane launchers, the big catapult was knocking them off one after the other, and uh, the wind was screaming through the radar tower above me, and all the, you know, it, it probably never occurs to you, but uh, and the standard uh, aircraft carrier, non-nuclear type, uh, there is uh, sticking out of, above the bridge. You know, there's a smokestack. You never think of that smokestack. And it's pouring all this junk out back in. The fallout of ashes is coming on top of your head, and it's hot, and you're coughing. The wind is whistling, and I'm up there eating a bologna sandwich, a great big one made out of uh, rye bread and bologna and four pounds of mustard, and I'm gnawing away at the salami and bologna sandwich. There's a guy in the darkness there next to me, a commander or something. He's in charge of some kind of nefarious activity aboard the ship, and he's got a big, a big helmet, and we're going on and on and on. <laughs> Off goes another one into the darkness. Yeah, they, you can hear them. They go. <laughs> Away they go. Whistling, whistling, on and on and on, and it went on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And it's dark. And and this went on for about four hours. We're getting tired. And then you see the little red lights, and this one flight is returning. 
and another flight is being brought up topside to be fired off, and another one is coming and making a big circle back. And it's long, long hours, and this guy looks at me and he says, Do you know, he said, Do you know that half of the red-blooded guys that read True Magazine would give their left foot to be right here now if they could read about it? <laughs> I says, Yeah, yeah, that's right, you know. And 20 minutes later, we're back down in the we're back down in the the mess hall, having some coffee, and it was it was I can't describe to you the dullness. <laughs> I just can't describe it to you. Everything is going and shaking. And now I'm beginning to think about this. You know, of course, everybody's saying, "Go, go, go!" Wow, boy, I'd give everything to go. A friend of mine who does travel pieces for a magazine, uh, in fact, it's Playboy. Shel Silverstein, an old friend of mine, uh, he's always, you know, you've seen these pieces, Silverstein in Bessarabia and Silverstein eyeing the girls in Russia and so on. And uh, only guys who have really traveled around, and I mean, there's a difference, you know, between traveling and tourist thing. Very different. Usually a traveler is a lonesome, solitary figure. Uh, he is not with a crowd of people with little 120 brownies. He's not in this great group of people you see in around the hotel lobby waiting for the bus that takes them on the number three tour through the palace. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not putting any of those people down, but the, the traveler has another scene going. And he knows something I don't think many tourists know. And that's the profound, peculiar, almost uh, enervating, physically enervating feeling of... Uh, it's a combination of loneliness, boredom... Uh, a thousand other little conflicting emotions, but which go to make up a vague form of shell shock. You kind of drift. You feel like you're a human satellite, uh, just drifting around the earth. You're certainly not part of the thing you left any longer. You're, you know, you're in Nigeria. We'll say, you're not, uh, you're not back on Sixth Avenue. And on the other hand, you're certainly not part of where you are. Not at all. Whereas the tourist remains part of that thing he was when he left home. He really remains a Texan, or he remains a guy from White Plains. Because he usually travels with a lot of other guys from White Plains and Texans. And they travel like a little knot of migratory birds moving across the landscape. And they they carry on. And you know, one of the reasons why it's funny, you know, you, you hear people who don't really travel a lot. It's funny, the people who who make their, once every five years, they make their two-week trip to Paris, and they talk about how they've really been there and back, and they really know about this stuff now. And they always put down the fact that in almost every place you go, there is an American bar or an American hotel. There's a place where Americans gather. And maybe they don't realize that there is a tremendous hunger that develops on the part of travelers for something that they can attach to for even for a brief moment and be part of. It isn't that they're chauvinistic. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, you know, we're, we're careful uh, about that. And many Americans feel very uncomfortable about the fact that in almost every country they go, there's an American colony. And they seem to think this shows American chauvinism and American uh, braggadocio. And we are not interested in the other people and all that. And yet, I wonder how they approach these ethnic commercials of Rheingold. Where if you uh, if you were to believe Rheingold, nobody in America is an American. They're all Irishmen, or they're all Greeks, or they're they're all uh, 
you know, whatever it is, they're, they're Hungarians and so on. Uh, and, and I, I don't know, you know, and, and yet when you, when you look at the Hungarian commercial, you'd feel like you're right back there in, in Hungary. You know, on 86th Street. You're in Hungary. They may be belting down Rheingold, but it looks like uh, Hungary, you know, or they'll do the whole thing of the Irish people. Now, is this looked upon as chauvinism by the, by the hip? Who see this? Do they think that the Irish are chauvinistic, or the the Hungarians, or the Yugoslavians, or the whatever it is that you're looking on, the Greeks, or is that just retaining your wonderful national uh, folk uh, traditions to the hip? That's a curious thing. I'm just asking a question about that. I've often read in magazines, uh, you know, the angry type magazines about about the American that goes to other countries and he refuses to be anything but an American and they somehow put that down. Well, I can only submit the saddest American of all is the American who goes to to, uh, to Karachi and buys himself a robe and squats down beside a sacred cow and pretends that he's a guru. I've seen them. They're, they're very sad. Allen Ginsberg was one of the saddest ones I've ever seen. And and uh, this, this uh, attempt to be something you aren't it's to me the most profound kind of dishonesty, and also it's a it's a profound kind of uh, comment on on a, a sort of cosmic rootlessness. And so, when you drift around as a traveler, you uh, I mean, really drift around as a traveler. Uh, you know, another thing too about most travelers that sets them apart from a tourist. One of the reasons why a tourist quite often will have an iron-bound schedule wherever he goes. If he's taking a trip, say to uh, to in, in England, there are seven different tours you can take immediately. The instant you hit London Airport, they're out there, and you, you'd be surprised how quickly you're sucked into the system and the routine. That I saw people actually step right off the plane in, say, a place like uh, well, the where I really saw it happening was in a place like uh, Bangkok. Step right off the plane and right into a Chevrolet station wagon that was operated by a Dartmouth undergraduate or somebody who was over there for three months and he had the PA system. All right, and now on my left, you will notice the ancient sacred castle, the palace of the original Bengal, and he's going on and off they go. They're not, they haven't even stopped to breathe the air yet and they're in this thing. Well, now why is this? Is this because they're fools? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I wish I could be that much of a put-downer. I think that people have a very definite feeling, not fear, but a feeling, and, and it's the scariest feeling, really, I suppose, it's a kind of fear, but it's a real kind of fear. The fear of... Root, have you ever had rootlessness, not being involved? Have you ever had a certain specific type of nightmare where you're just sort of floating and uh, and it's a sense of falling... Where you're, where you're falling, and there's, it's like, uh, it's like there's a profound, deep down in your stomach sense of uh, something unbelievable is about to happen, and a kind of fear, and the whole jazz going on. Have you ever had this feeling of a, of a, of a kind of nightmare? Well, this, this is the sort of feeling when you step off, uh, unless you are in, uh, this is under certain conditions, unless you're in a rigid, organized form that you can find uh, security in. So a guy jumps off of a plane and he looks around and he's in a place really foreign. Now you might not necessarily feel that way when you go to Chicago or San Francisco or even if you go to London. You know, at least you speak the language. But if you drop off a plane in the middle of, say, uh, Lagos, 
That's not quite the same. <laughs> it isn't, no matter how much you like to pretend back here in the States that when you get to these places, you'll immediately make contact with the little people. And uh, people everywhere are the same underneath it all, you know, all this stuff. Well, you are suddenly struck with that strange smell. Uh, you can, you, you the, the sounds are different, and everything under your foot is different. And, and uh, you look around, and, and there's a, it's like, it's like suddenly coming into that, that Kafka-esque world where uh, people are talking and saying and feeling and doing things, and you just are not even existing. You just kind of are there. You know, it's like, it's like that. Uh, you remember the Kafka story, the Metamorphosis, where the man turned into a beetle. Well, you feel like you've turned into a beetle when you suddenly land in in a place where you are really not part of the scene. Now, uh, you'd be surprised, even the most hardened travelers, and I've traveled with guys who have spent, and I'm talking about really tough, hardened travelers, like, like a friend of mine who's a photographer, who every week I get cards from him from a thousand miles away from the last one. The last card I got from was, was from Buenos Aires. The card before that was from Belgrade. The card before that was from Chile. This is the kind of guy who spends all of his life uh, re-plane seats for his little bag, you know, <laughs> all of his life. And he looks out with, with sort of, uh, sort of bluish-gray eyes at that great spinning world under there until eventually it has no reality. You would think that a guy that would travel a lot would begin to have a profound sense of reality and understanding and knowledge of the world. No, uh, it is only the man who doesn't travel who can afford to sit by his pond and be Thoreau who can come to the vast sweeping generalizations of what man can do and can't do, what man can feel and can't feel, what man is and isn't. Uh, the best way to be a philosopher is don't go see people. That's, <laughs> I'll tell you, don't go see the way it is. And, 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 uh, and he, he uh, we, we traveled a good bit ourselves. In fact, the two of us put the maybe 25,000 miles behind us together. And uh, I remember one night in a, in a hotel, in uh, Singapore, uh, <laughs> how's this for name place dropping? And, and he's looking out, and I said to him, I said, I, I was looking out the window, saying, I says, gee, wow, and looking down there, and you could uh, the hot breath of the jungle was around. You could smell that peculiar smell of the Orient, which is a, a pleasant, strange smell that I've smelled in many places. It's a, it's a kind of a burnt coffee smell, a curious uh, cinnamon-like smell. And uh, sandalwood, it's hard to describe what that smell is. It really is. It, it genuinely is. It isn't what you think it is. You keep thinking of Jersey, uh, Secaucus. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> isn't it ever amuse you that, that, that Jersey calls them uh, the meadows when all they are is swamps? <laughs> that ain't no meadow, Jersey. That's a swamp. I ever saw one. And uh, everybody has his own little illusion, his little dream. So you keep with it, yours. It's all right. The Garden State. And uh, I, 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 looking out a window, and and I, and Simon was was flaked out on one of the beds. You know, he just and and uh, both of our mouths are open like fish, uh, because the one thing we wanted was a cold drink of water. Oh boy! And uh, he's sort of laying there, going, <laughs> and the heat's going in and out. And I turn to Simon. I'm looking out at this this fantastic place, Singapore, and all my mind, my mind is going back through things, uh, the Japanese occupation of Singapore, I keep thinking of the stories I've read about it, and the British leaving Singapore, and 
the Malaysian riots and everything that went on in those streets. And I'm looking out, and I said, we're really here. And there was a pause, and Simon said, he put his hand up, and he says, well, where are we, by the way? And I said, Singapore. He says, oh, yeah. Put his head back down. <laughs> Last night, it had been Frankfurt. The night before that, it had been Athens. The night before that, it had been Cairo. Let me tell you some night the experience I had in Cairo, in the Cairo uh, airport with my Jewish friend. That was a wild scene. We'll get onto that some night and the hassle I had with the with the uh, with the Cairo police. Uh, that, that at three o'clock in the morning was a fascinating uh, little tiny vignette of life. You know, we had come on this plane from Karachi. And it landed at why I don't know what I'm telling you. What he's saying for you about tonight? It sounds, you know, it's a, it's a curious uh, thing. Once in a while, I think about the places I've been. Don't talk much about it, but we've been on a plane. You should be on a plane sometime. If you want to see how uh, I'm not talking about a tourist plane. You should get on a regular local shuttle that flies between Bangkok and Karachi, uh, and is filled with uh, the world over there. And you get on the plane, and the plane takes off at Bangkok. Beautiful airport, strange airport. And you can see in the darkness in the airport, you can see all these militants outlined against the blackness there, all with their big booms, the big tails sticking up there. And uh, there's an area that's just uh, restricted, and you stay out of there, and you see these green trucks, and you see uh, Siamese soldiers moving back and forth. They ain't the, this is the, not the king and I, friends. Uh, it's not Yul Brynersville. And uh, it's a beautiful place, and we got on the plane, and it was it was a, a local shuttle, really. And we're, we're surrounded by 8,000 crying Indian kids and uh, old gentlemen of very uh, almost uh, indiscernible nationality who spoke rare dialects, one kind or another. And this uh, hostess moving back and forth and talking to all of them in their native tongue. And you don't understand the word of anything that's going on, and you realize you are the exotic one in this crowd. And everyone is vaguely looking at you. Oh, that's funny shoes. Oh, these smokes, look at that. How big they are. You know? Look at that. That's strange. You know? And there you are, the big American. You sit there, and you're not a big, tough American. Thing. Suddenly you realize that you truly are, or there are places in the world where you are genuinely a foreigner, and as exotic as anything we think Fu Manchu is. And uh, we're sitting there, and the girl came along, and she was speaking, uh, I guess she was speaking Hindi, perhaps she was, I know that she was speaking Siamese just behind us, and she's an olive-complexioned girl who, uh, again, of one of those uh, indiscernible nationalities, very polite, and she walked up immediately. She speaks to us in this clear, crystal, strangely bell-like English, not American, not English, but a kind of tape that came out. And she says, uh, you desire something to eat, sir? I says, yes, what do we have? And she says, uh, we have uh, no Western food, sorry, sir. And I said, I have. And so she disappeared in the direction of the galley and she came out with all these little trays she's giving. And uh, we, we winged on through the night uh, eating uh, Indian food, which incidentally I happen to like. And uh, we landed at Karachi, and this was in the middle of the big hassles. That Karachi, in fact, it's now heating up now. It was beginning then, the Pakistan-Indian problem. And we landed at the airport, and these people immediately could see in the darkness. Everything was pitch black. 
This great truck pulled up to the side of the plane and began to unload luggage. I'm looking out. I wasn't getting off. This time, I had gotten off the time before going out. And I just looked down into the darkness of Karachi, and all these people filed off silently. And uh, some of them were enemies of the guy walking ahead of him. There were Pakistanis, and there were Indians, and there were all kinds of people. And they never said much. They just sort of all filed off quietly with their robes and their English suits and their 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 bond hats and uh, one thing and another. And they, they all quietly filed off into the darkness. And the crew changed. And uh, the next crew that came on was a totally different type of crew. And uh, they, they they traveled into the outside world, really. They, they took off at Karachi, and they headed off in the direction of Cairo. Uh, and uh, this was a different kind of crew. This was a more... Uh, all, even You could even see the airplane is vaguely changing into a Western airplane. <laughs> and, and the crew sort of had a different aura about them. When I sat there by myself in the dark, waiting for the rest of these people to come on that were going to go with us further on towards uh, the Western world, and they began to file out of the darkness. It's a new group of people. And the entire... The entire feeling in the plane changed. There were French businessmen, and there were tall, thin Englishmen in white shorts got on, and uh, ladies with flowered pink dresses whose nose run, uh, all kinds of little skinny kids. Oh, you've never seen what it's what what the English are like way out there. There's a fascinating quality to them, and uh, a lady sitting behind us, and uh, she was weeping and, and uh, carrying on, and the guy was comforting her. And uh, they were leaving Karachi, which was her home. And they, uh, she was an Indian. And after listening to this for a while, I realized she was German. She was going back to Munich, but she wanted to stay in Karachi. And because of the trouble, they were leaving. And their company was sending them back. And the, the, the whole complexion of the plane changed. And uh, pretty soon this uh, girl came walking back. The plane took off into the darkness, and she came walking back. And she's a tall, slender, blonde uh, stewardess. And she says... Uh, Oh, uh, she said, uh, would you care for anything to eat, sir? <laughs> she has this beautiful, clean, vaguely, not quite English uh, dialect. And I, I began to ask her what she was. And it turns out that she was not at all English, but she was some kind of Greek. <laughs> and, uh, and we went winging on and on and on. So travel is, is not exactly, uh, it is not exactly the one long, the one long uh, hymn of excitement. And just hour after hour, we traveled and traveled and kept falling asleep and waking up. And then all of a sudden, you, you, you'd be pushed off the plane and they give you the boarding thing, you know, and they put you in a pen in, in uh, Cairo. And some night, I'll do a whole story about that evening in Cairo. Are you curious about that? Speaking of exotica, we have with us tonight happiness. And uh, as a guy who has stuffed his gullet with food from here all the way to the Antipodes... I would uh, like to highly personally recommend Happiness, which is a superb Chinese restaurant up on Broadway between 93rd and 94th. It's a great neighborhood around there, one of my favorite neighborhoods in New York City. And uh, you'd be surprised at the number of world-famous people uh, live within a three- or four-block of that odd, and in that odd neighborhood. This is one of the truly exotic neighborhoods of New York. It's up on Broadway between 93rd and 94th. In that whole area there, that's a great yeasty swinging quality of that, that area. There's danger, there's everything up there. And this restaurant is called Happiness. And uh, they're on Broadway. They have a bar, and it's a real fine place, and I think you'll like it. They're open seven days a week, and they're open to 1 o'clock in the morning. Happiness. 
And they don't call it happiness restaurant, incidentally. It's just happiness. It's up there on Broadway between 93rd and 94th, a little nirvana that you can <laughs> that you can afford. And uh, speaking of little nirvanas, we have with us tonight uh, also Harper's Magazine. And uh, they have a piece in there. You know, I would, would really like to argue about people uh, regarding Ship of Fools uh, as a movie. I think Ship of Fools was probably the most pretentious, boring movie I've seen in many a year. And uh, it was one of the most badly written movies I've ever seen, too. I'm talking about among the big-time, multi-billion dollar, highly applauded movies. I thought this movie, in its own way, was more uh, boring and dull and obvious than some of the biblical epics that the that the critics leap on. Well, there's a big piece about Ship of Fools in the current Harper's Magazine, which is on the newsstand right now, the September issue. I'm an old Harper's reader, by the way. And one of the most interesting men I've ever known is John Fisher, who is the editor of Harper's. You know, any magazine, uh, in the ultimate sense, reflects the men who create it, and one specific man usually. Do you know that the, that the man at Harper's is a man named John Fisher? Or like the man at Playboy is Hefner? Very different kinds of men, but uh, men who in their own way, uh, they, they, they know the same things. They control this great, vast word of print. Hey, this was a peculiar show tonight, wasn't it? <laughs> Do you like this kind, Skip, once in a while? Now, let me t uh, remind me to tell you about that night in, in, uh, in Cairo. It was highly educational. And, uh, you know, I've, I've learned a long time ago, it's one thing writing a wonderful, idealistic piece on a foreign country or a situation that's thousands of miles away, and another thing actually being there and confronting it head-on. It's like a learned, uh, a learned uh, animal specialist writing long, involved treatises on hooded cobras and what a beautiful animal it is. And then one night he meets one in his closet looking out of his galoshes with the hood extended with those two little red eyes peering into the darkness there's a brief instant and then pow! and he's learned more about cobras than he will ever learn out of books 